0: Um, uh, welcome everyone to this talk. I'd like to introduce um, Anila, Anila Kayum Aga. She was born in Lahore, Pakistan in 1965 and emigrated to the US in 2000 where she continues to live and work. Um is known for her award-winning immersive light installations, you may have seen them at the entrance of the fair hymn, we'll discuss them in greater detail in a bit, um, as well as her in- intimate embroidery drawings which explore global politics, cultural multiplicity, mass media and social and gender roles. Uh, Anila has recently had solo museum shows amongst many others at the Eamon Carter Museum of Art in Fort Worth, the University of New Mexico Museum in Albuquerque, and the Columbia Museum of Art in South Carolina. And she is represented by uh, Sundaram Tagore Gallery. Um, So Anila, I think it would make sense to start this discussion with the works you're showing here at Masterpiece, one of which is a light installation titled A Beautiful Despair Turquoise. And it's essentially a cube created from laser-cut lacquered steel which casts these beautiful patterns um, and shadows in the walls. But the the, the cubes are recurring uh, structure and theme in your work, isn't it? Um, And I just wondered if you could tell us a bit about that and what it signifies.
1: Well, I don't really have a prepared statement, but I'm just going to sort of like uh, tell you some ideas that um, when I'm thinking of making a work, I usually try to connect it to what is happening in my life, what may have happened in the past, and what I'm seeing in the politics and social environments of you know where I live. And since I'm a global citizen, I think uh, one can't be uh, living life in isolation anymore. I think it's really important to reflect what is happening around us, and so the cube or the cube symbol is a very important symbol as far as structure is concerned. Geometry is very integral to my work, and the cube also carries significance for a a number of reasons, because a lot of churches, a lot of mosques, a lot of synagogues are often uh, made in geometric forms. And so, um, and then of course I grew up in Pakistan so the Kaaba was a very important element in my life when I was growing up because there was a mosque on almost every corner of the, of the city of Lahore. And so for me it, it's, it's a way to critique some of the things I have seen happening throughout my life. especially. Um, the imposition of religion on people and the way they are asked to behave. And uh, much of religion sort of kind of controls us in ways that are often detrimental to certain parts of society. Mm -hmm. And when I was growing up as a woman in Pakistan, I felt like I wasn't a first-class citizen. I was a second-class citizen there. And often I had to work my way around to what I had as my goals, rather than you know, just say, I want to do this. I had to kind of find a way to move around that whole idea of like, what I want. Mm-hmm. And so my, my thought was that um, you know, I would make a space that would reflect a feminine yet public space that allows people of all types all genders, all colors, all creeds, be able to participate in that space where they are made to feel welcome. Mm. And it sounds like a very trite idea in some ways because beauty often is considered very banal. But I was also thinking about the idea of like, you know, um, how do we make ourselves rise above our human endeavors which include a lot of war mongering or, you know, like, not getting along. And so the cube was a way to sort of symbolize that we can rise above ourselves Mm -hmm. if we do follow religion in its its true essence, which nobody does, really, in my opinion. And so... um, that was the reason why I chose the cube. And the first cube I built was, of course, with the help of Steve Pachel, who's here in the audience, and he's an amazing craftsperson and artist. Um, was the idea that he asked me, like, you know, do you want it to be on the ground? And I said, no, I want it to levitate. Because if it's rising, it means we can all rise. And so that was the reason why. And there's, multiple other reasons that I made that work, and I could talk about it in more if we have time, but um, there are layers to the work. It's not just um, beautiful to look at, but it's immersive. It allows you to become part of the art. Um, It allows you to think beyond your personal experience and connect to other people's experiences. allows you to see a perspective that's often feminine versus masculine, and so it deals with this complexity that our societies are built of, you know, like the intersection of almost everything. Mm -hmm. And so I I hope that people look to research more the background of what Islam or Muslim people live and do, not just the... Triangle of evil <laughs> that you know um, sort of is reflected about Islamic world, but I also feel that Islam has provided a number of different um, inventions to the world that are forgotten because we keep focusing on the negative, mm-hmm. and that was another reason why I wanted to make the cube and make it about South Asia or Central Asia and reflect the. M- the kind of filigree that I was familiar with, because it talks about the idea of where I come from. Mm -hmm. And it's a rich, rich area.
0: Yeah. And they sort of, you create sort of healing spaces almost, the sort of meditative, all-inclusive, as you say, Mm -hmm. spaces. But you've, you've spoken in the past before about a trip to Alhambra in Granada in Spain. And that was kind of a pivotal moment for you, wasn't it? Could Mm -hmm. you just describe what happened to you there and and, and how that shaped things?
1: It's slightly funny because, you know, they have a set time that you can visit. And um, I walked all the way up the hill. I didn't have time for lunch because I wanted to be on time. And so I was a little lightheaded and I'm walking through this beautiful complex. And it's a World Heritage site now. So it belongs to all of us, uh, you know, the entire world. And for me, that was a very important uh, moment to be able to enter this space that I'd read about in Pakistan. And so as I was walking around there, I noticed how people started talking in whispers. They were shuffling very quietly. Mm-hmm. And they are just walking, they were around. But it was also the fact that I felt many things, you know, sort of like, created this catalyst in my mind, I was thinking at that point in time that I am surrounded by pattern. You know, in the carvings, on the doors, the windows, mosaics, on the floors, and on tile work, on the carvings, the stucco, everything is made of pattern. Mm -hmm. And I was told, you know, when I was going through grad school and after, that pattern is just for women's work. It's craft work. Don't ever do that because you're going to be considered a craft artist and you'll never make it. And here I'm surrounded by this wonderful environment. And I thought to myself, screw that. (laughs) (laughs) This is what I'm going to do. (laughs) And so immediately I decided that, you know, I'm I'm in heaven. I'm in a pattern heaven. And so as I'm walking through, I'm like thinking, you know, the, the ideas of what craft and why not, and the differentiation that East and West make on things? Like, there are master craftspeople in Japan and Korea and in Pakistan, India, that make beautiful items and they're considered masters. Why not try to a- attain that kind of a degree of craftsmanship? Mm-hmm. And so, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to also use Pattern, but the biggest reason was to kind of show that women's work is not useless. It has value. And for me, that was a big deal because from where I come from and then as an immigrant living in the United States, my value was similar in both places. Mm -hmm. And so I had to create my own value and I think I wanted to elevate women's work. Mm -hmm. And so that was one of some of the things that came to my mind when I was thinking of it. And then when I sat down to write the grant, you know, write it all out. It took a while, but uh, once I wrote it out, I thought, oh, my God, this has so many possibilities mm-hmm. that it, it's so layered. Yes. I was excited. Yeah.
0: It, you, you mentioned that you were taught at uh, grad school that beauty is banal. You were sort of mm-hmm. encouraged to not make beautiful work. And yeah. yet, you know, you sort of said, well, why would I make work that you didn't want to look at? Um, I think that's fascinating, but you're, 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 I'd like to talk a bit about the formal qualities of the work, and, and you talk about women's work, but you also choose to work in steel, which is a so-called masculine mm-hmm. um, material. I wondered, is that relevant, you taking on this sort of very masculine uh, material and making these very finely crafted, laser-cut, beautiful works from them? Was that is that a consideration for you?
1: It was very much a consideration. I remember at first I thought I would want to make it in wood so it's solid and it's heavy. I really at that point I didn't really have the money to explore the the idea of steel. But, you know, I was thinking of like what is the heaviest thing that men do? You know, like they lift <laughs> weights, but they also make these giant things. Like uh, Richard Serra came to mind and I'm like thinking, you know, he makes these beautiful structures and they're so architectural in shape and size, yet they're so bulky. What if I take something similar that's really heavy, but make it so light that it feels like it's uh, just ephemeral? Mm. And that has always been one of the goals to create ephemerality through the work where people can kind of bask in the ins and outs of how important light is for people. And it was also the idea of literacy, you know? Mm -hmm. Because as I was growing up in Pakistan, I mean, much of the country is still semi-literate. And it, it breaks my heart to think that much of the world is in that condition still, and we are in the 21st century. And education can open people's hearts and minds and make us more welcoming to others. Mm -hmm. And when I arrived in the United States, people are generally really lovely and everybody's wonderful. But there's a fear of the unknown. And I faced that. And especially after Mm 9-11, it was just like, you know, it became everything there. People feared anybody who looked different or spoke differently. And so that was a consideration too like all these you know i mean like why do we choose a city to be built by men only <laughs> you know yeah. like if you think about it most of the architects are often it's a male dominated environment and so if you walk the city streets at night they're not often very much light in there mm-hmm. and women are walking and you know i mean like so I, I was thinking about such things, like in Lahore, if I'd go and walk at night, I would be afraid for my safety. And that was something that was a consideration too. And so I've given you a very convoluted answer, so I apologize. No, it's brilliant. But no, it's, no, <laughs> it's, 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 it's so much to talk about that I... I
0: there are many layers, but I also mm-hmm. wanted to ask you about colour because you've, mm-hmm. you've chosen these, this lovely turquoise here against this red. And I just wondered, what were the inspirations? Who's inspired you to, in terms of your choices of colour?
1: Well, there are two things. Um, first, I am fascinated by South Asian Mughal architecture because they did something very well. And that was the Pietra Dura, which is mm. the inlay work that they do. With uh, you know, in the in the ancient times, they they would have marble, and there were craftspeople who would sit there and carve these beautiful um, patterns in it, and then they would insert semi-precious stones or tiles into it. So that's my first inspiration. But then, secondly, I was thinking that I'm going to be exhibiting in London, of all places. I mean, like the capital of. <laughs> The, you know, I mean, it's just wonderful to be here, right? And then it occurred to me that the red buses, you know, the 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 double-deckers double deckers, and yeah. the phone booths and the telephone box, uh, you know, the letter boxes or letter mailboxes. And I was like, red, it has to be. And then th- the third thing is that I love the the work of Matisse Mm -hmm. and his ability to marry color together where he would place things next to each other and they would just vibrate. Mm -hmm. And so those considerations were part of my decision to do the red and the lapis from Pakistan and Afghanistan. Lapis is this beautiful um, uh, mineral that has veins of gold in it, but it's this vibrant blue, and I wanted to marry those two together. And then um, my first intention was to make the cube bright orange, but then, you know, sort of like a tomato red. And Sundaram, who's my lovely gallerist, and he's a (laughs) lovely gentleman, he very politely said, you can do whatever, but, you know, we'd like the blue. (laughs) So I was like, well, next, iteration can be orange there you go. but I was uh, and then the yellow I thought of like spring and summer but also the color of Ukraine <laughs> and thinking of what's happening in the world so I often think about the reasons of why I'm doing certain things and it may not be immediately visible or even noticeable but I kind of think about it and I you know since I'm not a writer you know, I let you do
0: your job. (laughs) Thanks for that. (laughs) Um, I wanted to talk for a minute, and you've seen some of the images coming up um, of your, alongside your large-scale sculptural installations, you also create these intimate embroidered drawings, um, Mm -hmm. and I just wondered how do those sort of practices, practices, do they dovetail at all, Um, and what does the embroidery signify?
1: Well, when i was very young i was very interested in um this idea of you know like when i finished grad school it was all about like creating a female space space in the u.s wanting to show my work there and not being able to show because very few female artists were making it to the gallery scene and then my mother had as I was growing up, she would have these sewing circles where people, women from the neighborhood would come in and they would uh, do the sewing for the quilts uh, for the winter. And I was, I used to be under them, you know, when I was little, I'd listen to their stories and it kind of connected. The idea of like how sewing circles often create this environment where share, people share their lives, Mm. their life stories. And sometimes you get help sometimes you provide help. And so community living can be a very generous way to live, I think. And so my mother used to do that quite often. And so I use um, sewing as a way to create, you know, like the raw edges, I kind of cover them with a blanket stitch Mm -hmm. so the rawness goes away, or I'll do the running stitch. And now I start adding beads to create the lights the pinpoints of lights in there. And so they are really to uh, sort of reflect the unheard stories of women around the world, kind of. Mm. It's, a, it's a weird way to say it, but, No,
0: yes. that's interesting, and because my next question is about language, and we talking about stories, um, and I, want, I wondered if we could say something at this point about the titles of your work, because I think they're fascinating, and, and one I think that, that is on the presentation is titled, My Forked Tongue, and that's created from letters suspended from the ceiling. Is that right? Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. How important is, are the titles, and where do they come from, and how important is language, I suppose?
1: So I grew up with uh, three languages, and I, I can understand many other regional languages. Uh, you know, Hindi, Urdu, which is the language spoken in Pakistan, Hindi, and in India, mm-hmm. and English, of course. And so when I moved to the United States, I was bilingual. But people would talk loud at me, thinking that I'm a foreigner, so they would speak louder, you know. There's, how's the weather up, (laughs) you know, that (laughs) kind of thing. And it used to annoy me a lot, but I was thinking of like this idea of how language, if you don't understand it, can create an unseen barrier that doesn't allow you to cross over and become part of somebody else's culture. And that's one of the strongest things people use against other people. Like if you're infiltrating something and your language is a different language, it's very hard to understand how the culture works. And so that particular work was uh, about the idea of, like, here I am, this educated person who's speaking three languages, understands multiple other regional languages of South Asia, and yet, I am not making headway into the American society. So it was a way to kind of do uh, do a way, kind of think it through and think of like how can I create this beautiful jewelry of words or letters that would allow people to understand. If you mix them all together, they kind of create a very lovely environment. Yeah. And titles are extremely important to me. I love poetry, poetic titles, and they can tell a whole story. And you can build that story in your mind. So A Beautiful Despair, what does that mean to you? You know, for me, it means that we have come out of the pandemic. There's hope, yet there's a lot of loss. A Beautiful Despair, you know, it's combined Mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. Uh, We give birth, so we go through the pain, yet we are presented with this beautiful newborn. Mm -hmm. You know, the the whole idea of like pain follow, kind of is combined with happiness or Mm -hmm. contentment. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I use these uh, interesting titles. I Mm -hmm. find them really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Also on my phone, I collect titles. So if I listen to a song and something is said in it that makes sense, I'll record it in my, I have a running title list of three hundred and seventy five
0: titles right now I love this so you are a writer you're a poet
1: you you (laughs) collect
0: words well if
1: you looked at them you may think like
0: what (laughs) I think that's fascinating um so the other piece that you're showing here at Masterpiece is is called This is Not a Refuge and I wondered if you could just briefly describe the work I'm sure everyone has seen it at the entrance but just in case you haven't could you briefly describe the work and Um, And how it relates to your experience, I suppose, of emigrating to the U.S. um, in 2000?
1: I think being a displaced person carries loss with it forever. And I think one can never forgive or forget the people that you may have loved in the past, in your life. You always carry them with you. And so the idea of emigrating somewhere new for economic reasons or for a better life or for safety, for instance, which many refugees do kind of was the instigation of that particular work. And um, this is not a refuge was sort of like a direct reference to um, our previous president in the United States who had said that immigrants are bringing trash to our country, we need to get rid of them, or we need to close the borders. And then I was also watching what was happening in Europe when immigrants were trying to cross the Mediterranean and on arrival, you know, not many made it across. And so it was it, it was just this idea of um, thinking it through that during colonization, which is still continuing, of course, and the after effects are still gonna reverberate for the rest of this century, I believe. The idea of like having immigrants or refugees coming from regions that actually were colonized and then excavated for their minerals and their fortunes and brought back to Europe and to the United States, and then we are refusing those people to come into our borders. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of refuge is really not true. You know, the idea of America that we export to the rest of the world Mm -hmm. as saying that we welcome you're tired, you're hungry, you're, you know, the immigrants coming on the Statue of Liberty, it's written all over Mm -hmm. and yet it's not true. So I was thinking of like how to reflect that idea that this is not really a refuge. And it also applies to people who actually live there because, you know, they work so many hours Mm -hmm. and so hard and yet, you know, upward mobility is often not provided to them. So I was thinking of all these things and uh, trying to understand how to reflect that, and it occurred to me to make a European or a Western-style house structure that reflects also the refugee tents and then make this beautiful filigree pattern on it that reflects, you know, floral, which is what life is all about, you know, the fragility of life, and then thinking of not adding any real shelter in it. So if you're inside that space, you realize that it doesn't really give you refuge. It's interrogative. It's, uh, it doesn't protect you from the elements or heat, cold, snow, mm-hmm. you know, warmth, whatever. And then, but yet it's like a mirage. You know, you look at it and you think, oh, well, how beautiful, I want to live there. And there's no door in it. So the agency of just the general public has been taken away. Mm. And that was what I was thinking of when I was trying to make that work. Um, mm. You know, I mean, I, I hope I explained it well. Very well. Um, I just feel that um, we kind of have to rise above ourselves. Mm. And what what are the
0: patterns that you've cut into it? So you mentioned... yeah. So
1: the patterns were actually... Uh, a reference to my mother's um, book rest that she would read her Quran on. Mm-hmm. And the Quran is the holy um, book for you know Muslims or Islamic people. And it had this it was made out of walnut wood and it was beautifully carved. And so I was thinking of like how to reflect the whole idea of colonization and how you know we've appropriated And then, you know, of course, uh, the idea of like, uh, you know, trade moves around the world, we appropriate, we take from others. Like in this city of London, you can eat all types of foods from all (laughs) types of cultures. And it's amazing. And so it was also reflective of that.
0: Yeah, And and you mentioned... um well, you moved to, emigrated to the U.S. in 2000, so just before 9-11, and that obviously saw a huge rise, sharp rise in anti-Muslim sentiment. And I just wondered, you know, did that shape your experience um, of the U.S., and, and did it shape your work at all? How, how did that affect you?
1: I, I think that in the beginning, as soon as I could, I wanted to be able to vote because I felt like there was a need for people such as myself to be heard. But you know, the, the sad thing about the United States is that the black and white con- conversation is so loud that people who may be from other places often are much lower in volume. Mm-hmm. And so you often don't hear them. You know, So having a platform such as mine, I can bring those voices a little higher in tone. Um, America has been very lovely to me, so I have nothing against it. I mean, I, I have an American husband who's wonderful, and you know, uh, I'm an American myself, and I consider myself uh, an American living in America, working there. I just think that uh, there's hypocrisy everywhere, and we just have to enlighten that hypocrisy so we can... Um, participate as citizens and try to change that. And so for me, as an educator in the United States, I've done my best to educate students, especially in the Midwest, where they would often be first-timers going to college, to tell them where I come from. I would actually show them on the map where I come from and what it means and what's this triangle of evil used to be and is not really true. and. Stuff like that. But I think that um, I, I provided a service in, in the form of teaching, and it's a way to give back to my community as well. Mm. Um, I tried to do that. But in the beginning, it was extremely difficult. After 9 11, I was no longer anonymous. Mm. You know, people would turn around when they'd hear me. Talk because I have a slight accent still, but back mm-hmm. then I may have had a stronger accent. So mm-hmm. it was uh, it was kind of interesting to realize that I wasn't as welcome as when I arrived, mm-hmm. which was in the late 1999, so November of 99. So really, 2000, mm-hmm. 2000 was great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. After that, it just kind of started. Yeah. But then I started university. Right. When was that? What year did you? Um, 2000. Yeah. Uh, and one. And, and what did you
0: study? What were you studying there? I
1: was studying um, fine art. I was doing my masters in yeah. fine art, and so the thing that was really interesting was that academic institutions do not allow people to be rude to you, mean to you. They have very strong laws within the you know the university campus mm. and everything. Mm. So my professor would often ask me if I was okay and whether she needed to protect me or, you know, other people needed to protect me. But it was when you would go outside of the campus, that's when you faced Mm -hmm. a different environment. Mm. And, you know, I'm not a victim. Uh, I don't want to be a victim, so I would deal with it. I never, I mean, I'm fairly stoic about that. Mm. But there were times when I felt quite, I didn't understand why people were being so difficult. I'll give you an example, anecdotal definitely, yet uh, it happened to me. Um, I got hired in a very fancy, it was my first job, I wanted to you know, find jobs, looking desperately to work, and in Dallas I found a job at a very fancy store, clothing store. I have a long history of clothing expertise, mm-hmm. textile expertise, mm-hmm. and so I was like, you know, the guy hired me. He was an African-American um, assistant manager. He hired me, and he said, when can you start? And I said, tomorrow. So I show up, and the next day, the lady who was the actual store manager looked at me up and down and said, no, you're not oh hired. God. I thought she was joking. I mm. really did. Mm. I sat outside the store for an hour and a half, waiting for her to change her mind. Mm. I thought that she would look at my resume and think, You know, she knows textiles. She Mm. knows clothing. Mm. She's designed these things. Mm. She will understand what Mm. to do. Mm. She just simply refused. Mm. And I didn't, at that point, understand why that happened. Mm. But much later, when I started university and started going through the history of racism within the United States, I kind of realized, oh.
0: right.
1: (laughs) So I, I... try not to let my students do something like that. Yeah. We talk about it. Yeah.
0: Did you always know you wanted to be an artist? I mean, just thinking about you studying, when, when did you first think, this is what I want to do?
1: Probably when I was like eight, maybe, right. I remember. Uh, so because, you know, Pakistan was part of uh, the larger subcontinent, India, and we were colonized by the British, there's a strong sense of finishing schools there. So my parents sent us to a school in the hills, um, you know, sort of like to get finished, raw edges removed, all that kind of (laughs) beautiful stuff. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I went to a hill station boarding school. That's why I speak English the way I do. And that was definitely a benefit, um, has helped me tremendously. Um, But... um, I came to the U.S. as an educated person, so I kind of knew. But I remember I was possibly nine, and we had an art teacher from Britain who asked us to make a drawing, you know, in art class. We would have actual art classes and music classes and things like that. I suck at music, but I'm really good (laughs) at drawing. And so she asked us to paint, you know, do whatever we wanted to use, and I made a watercolor drawing of the hills. And she looked at it and looked at me and said, I think you're going to be an artist. And I had no frame of reference, really. My parents were not artists. I never had an artist in the family. But that stayed within my head. And I think as I grew up and started becoming more more and more aware, uh, I would read books about it and stuff like that. And so when I went to high school, I just told my, you know, my mother wanted me to be a doctor because... In Pakistan, you have to have a doctor, an engineer, a lawyer, and a police officer in your family. <laughs> of course, <Yep. laughs> So I was designated to be the doctor. And I just refused. I said, I want to be an artist. And um, I got admitted, and that, you know, that's where I ended up.
0: I love that. Um, sort of to, to, to bring it to another end, you've mentioned before that you're interested in technology. Um and I just wondered if that has changed or affected your attitude to art making and, and whether, your, whether your practice has changed since the pandemic, since 2020. And of course, that's sort of when life went online. Um, well, perhaps there are two questions. How has technology or has technology affected your art making? And has your practice changed since the pandemic?
1: You know, the interesting thing is, 20 years ago when I was going to, or 23 years ago when I started grad school, I was like thinking that, I, you know, I'm always going to be an object maker. I love making things, I love sewing, I love drawing. So, and when I teach, and I just enjoy so much drawing with my students and everything. But I realized very early on that if I wanted to make bigger works and architectural scale, I would have to employ technology, and we were already starting to talk about the use of technology in college. And so, I actually took a class on Adobe, you know, um, you know, Photoshop and stuff like that. But then, once I left graduate school, I was like, um, you know, just trying to find a job, any job, so I could make a life for my myself and my son. And so, I didn't, I, you know, the 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 project, My Fork Tongue that you asked me about, I hand cut six to 10,000 letters by hand. My goodness. And that was what I would do. And I was dating Steve at the time, and Steve would say, you know, I can get this done for you in no time. And I would think, no, I'm going to do this all myself. And so I would sit there and cut, because it's also very meditative to make things by hand and enjoy making them, think things through. And so I kept doing that, but I was very aware of how if I ever wanted to make bigger works, bigger than what my folk tongue was all about, then I would have to use technology. And when I got the money from, with the grant that I received from Indiana University, I was like, oh, we can use technology now. I don't have to, you know, do everything by, by myself. Mm-hmm. And that's when I and Steve teamed up. And collaborated on that first and subsequent pieces, and so Steve is the the artist who makes who crafts all these beautiful sculptures, and I kind of create the concept and you know do the drawings and put the patterns together, and then he'll take it on and he'll build them, and so it's a very strong collaboration in a way, mm-hmm. and you know it's sad that the art world. Uh, doesn't allow the artists to give credit to the fabrication team, Mm. but they're integral to our process. I mean, without them, we would be, in technology or technological-based work, it would be very hard to make it all by myself.
0: Yeah it's true it's the sort of unsung heroes in some ways but has it has it sort of changed the scope and ambition of your mm-hmm. scale and ambition of your yes. your works presumably it's allowed you to work on a far bigger
1: scale Yes i mean if you look at those works i i don't think it would take me years to just carve by hand <laughs> if i were doing sure. it in steel oh my god Yes <laughs> yeah. So yeah. yes technology is an amazing um, tool but you asked me how the pandemic uh, two years were, mm. and that was awful because we had to zoom the classes. So the universities, both the universities that I worked with um, during that period, um, we went online, and our our students really suffered. I think uh, the isolation made them. I think they are so much. Further behind in being able to communicate with other people, I often now, you know, this past semester when the campus was actually opened up a little more in Augusta University, I was uh, I was trying to encourage students to talk to each other because they all just look at their phones and they are not interested in talking. And I said, like, you can learn so much from each other. I mean, mm-hmm. we are not uh, islands. We need to be part of a community, a larger community, and that's how we can make change. And mm-hmm. so that was hard. The loss of the two years may tell us later this generation may a lost generation that went to school mm-hmm. during that time. And I, it breaks my heart to see them like that because they are kind of isolated. Mm-hmm. And so I remember I was telling this one young woman, and she's very quiet, and she's like always like this, and it's like, you know, there are students here who'd love to get to know you. You know, you're very special, and not in the special way, <laughs> in kind of, but in a good way. And so she's she's so shy, she wouldn't make any effort, so then I went to the other women in the class, and I said, Know, go and ask her some questions and so slowly but surely i think she is opening up but it takes time and i think mm-hmm. that the pandemic has kind of made us realize how much we need each other yeah
0: yeah the other sort of i was going to say fad but the other thing to come out of um the pandemic were, were nfts and i know you're an object maker very you know clearly an object maker very physically an object make- maker but i'm just curious to know what you think about nfts would you ever Incorporate that into your practice?
1: I don't know. I, I still don't really quite understand what Nobody it's all does, about. I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you make money? Do you sell it once? Do you sell it multiple times? I, mm. I really is it like a print, you mm. know, like a printmaker's print, mm-hmm. or is it like a commercial print? I mean mm-hmm. what mm. I don't think I've spent to tell you honestly, I've been so busy getting different shows ready over the last year, two years and Spending all my time in the studio, I barely really have paid attention to uh, NFTs in that way. I've read about them. I understand that there are people who are making a lot of money on it. But for me, art is not about making money. I mean, like, you know, whatever money I make, I put it back in the business so we can make another sculpture. (laughs) So that's how I think. I I think of, like, either putting some away for my old age. So I can be like Louise Bourgeois mm-hmm. and work till ninety-two, but you know, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't really affect me per se. I think no, yeah. um,
0: but if we could talk a bit about the future, um, and, and, and I mean, I know you've been credi- incredibly busy with your solo shows, but can you tell us a bit about the new work you're working on? Anything you've got in the pipeline? Is there anything that you can share with us?
1: So you know, the the, the thing of the. The art world is strange in some ways. Once you gain some success in a particular type of work, then they want that. And that's uh, something that I've noticed. Uh, I'm doing a lot of shows in the US and in other places, and everybody wants a queue. So that's great. It's a great problem to have, right? And I'm happy to do that. But I try to slide in some new work on the side. Mm. (laughs) It's like, you should look at this as well. And so right now I'm making three new projects, and they are uh, two of them are for two group shows, and I love doing group shows, which I don't often get invited into, because my, my, my work th- is so different All from right. everybody. Uh, that's not true, not everybody's work, but it's quite often difficult to fit into a group show. And so I'm making these two new works. One is really a reiteration of a previous work that I did in 2009 and it's called uh, it was called A Flood of Tears, but I've kind of changed the title to Gathering Storms. And it's uh, I'm remaking it in newer materials. The the first time I made that it was metallic thread and small needles. Now I've increased the size of the needles and I've I'm adding beads to it, and it's going to be like a flood of um, uh, blood coming down. Wow. <laughs> and I, I'm very excited about that. But it's also again going to be in a very geometric form, uh, 12 feet tall and um, possibly six by six. So not qu- more like a recta- uh, rectangular work rather than or a you know. And then I'm making another cube made of made out of multiple charred cubes. And then another project I'm thinking of is um, the ghostly shadows from the metallic, you know, sort of like this yeah. effect from the metal. Yeah. I'm wanting to make something like that. And that's in development. So I, I keep thinking about it. And I've got like multiple shows coming up. Um, first one, of course, is with Sundaram Tagore in New York, in the Chelsea area. I'm extremely excited about that, I'm also really deathly scared. Why? <laughs> well, you know, it's Chelsea, it's yeah, New York City, sure. it's Sundaram Tagore. <laughs> so uh, that's uh, you know something I've been working on for a while, but then I've got like a survey show coming up at another American art museum in, um, close to Pittsburgh. And that's uh, maybe I can show something new there. And that that curator is very interested in doing some new work as well. I'm also doing a show in Philadelphia as part of a group show, and that's very exciting because I'm going to be showing with some really amazing artists. And so I'm, and they're all women, so it'll be really exciting. Um, is that the
0: Philadelphia Museum mm. of Art?
1: No. It's actually not Philadelphia. It's called the. Um, Center for Wood and Art. Mm-hmm. And uh, the curator is an Israeli-American, and so it's uh, her name is Nava Millikan, and she's very interested in the mashrabia, which is like, you know, the cut-out jalis from South Asia and the Middle East, and so it's a combination of that. That's the charred cube that I'm making out of multiple pots of cubes in it, and I'm really excited because I want it to be sort of like... Without light,
0: right.
1: and just have surrounding light lighted, and so I I'm still working on the the project. It's due for next March. So, and then the needle. Bead pieces due in January, so I'm going to be extremely busy. <laughs> Goodness me, you absolutely are. Um,
0: well, Anita, there's that, been a really enlightening conversation. I don't know, if I'd like to open it up to anyone in the audience if anyone has any questions, any, any aspiring artists, perhaps. Um, if anyone has any questions. Please. Um, a lot about um, your reception.
1: The Middle East has been extremely welcoming, especially the Emirates. I've had a wonderful reception in India, but because I'm a Pakistani-born American, I'm not permitted to go back to India unless uh, somebody really high up can vouch for me, I believe. I mean, I've been told that. In fact, I was talking to a gallerist yesterday, and she kind of said, no, you can't come there, <laughs> so, unless somebody really high up. But it's been wonderful. And then I did go back to Pakistan and showed there in 2010. And I've been asked by one of the premier galleries that whenever I'm ready, she'd be happy to have a show for me. But the problem with um, transporting such heavy work to a country like Pakistan means who's going to pay for the shipping costs. So there's that. And it's, it's unless a gallery takes it or that gallery brings it in, it's pretty difficult to move. I mean, they come apart and they are you know, in smaller cr- like flat crates, but they still weigh quite a bit. And so moving it to Pakistan means like 700 pounds of uh, you know, steel going there inside the crate. I, I don't know if they can afford it. But I've had a wonderful, wonderful reception. Um, I remember my previous gallery, when they took me to Dubai Art Fair, I mean, nobody knew that people were gonna be interested. And he called me in the middle of the night, and I'm like half, you know, I mean, like I'm sleeping. And he says, Anila, we've sold all your work here. Like all the additions. I didn't understand at first what he was saying. And we'd sent one sculpture, five foot sculpture, uh, the same size as the one that's hanging here. And he called me like three days later and said, it's all gone. Can you make them? <laughs> right away. <laughs> so that was fabulous. And um, I've been to the Middle East a few times. Uh, I've been to Sharjah, and I exhibited there a number of times. I was hoping that I'd do some uh, a project with Saudi Arabia, but it hasn't come through yet, so we'll see. But it's been wonderful, really. I've exhibited in Korea. I've exhibited in um, Hong Kong, um, Singapore. And so I'm kind of moving around quite a bit. And New Zealand. Although I'd love to go there, I didn't go there myself. So thank you for asking that.
0: So a truly global audience. What about the? What about London? How has your experience been here?
1: I love it. <laughs> I mean, like, the reception has been amazing. Craig and his team have been wonderful. Lucy is lovely. Yeah. You are lovely. I mean, everybody has just been wonderful. And um, whoever I meet, and they, they want to take a photo with me in front of the work, I think they gravitate more towards the red and blue, mm-hmm. um, because it's really vibrant, and it's really, um, you know, sort of like... kind of doing this yeah (laughs) so it's very verdant i think and people are gravitating towards it and i'm just loving it and i unfortunately leave early tomorrow i wish i could stay here longer but uh work calls me back yeah it sounds like you've got a lot on your plate (laughs) um does anyone else yes please It's yes. Well, you know, when I lived in Houston and I was uh, as an adjunct professor there trying to make my professional career, at the Museum of Fine Arts, there used to be a piece called Dark Matter by Cornelia Parker. And I would take my students there almost every semester, once or twice a semester, and I would go and look at that piece because they had it for a long period on permanent display. And I would look at it, and I'd think, this is amazing. And it references so many things that I was thinking of. So she was a big influence in the way how I use the light. Um, the second uh, person who's really influenced, or many other people who have influenced me would be Uh, more international artists, say, for example, Shireen Nishat, because she did some things with cultural interpretation that, you know, would not have been accessible, that really, and you may not see that influence in my work physically or even conceptually, but it influenced me to think big. Gada Amir was another one, an Egyptian artist who lives in New York, I believe, and she's the one who did the abstract expressionism with pornographic figures hand-embroidered on her canvases. And so embroidery was such an integral part of what I was trying to do that that really influenced me in thinking how I could make drawing my way. You know, so understanding, and looking at other people's work and thinking, like, how are they doing their work allows you to kind of uh, think big. Um, another person who really influenced me was uh, Anne Hamilton. She's a, uh, an American artist who's amazing with fiber as well as with, you know, all sorts of installations. And I remember reading her uh, about her Venice Biennale's work in the 90s, where she put Braille on the wall and then let the red dust come down. And that just made me think of like the amazingness that women often do, yet they are not recognized for it. But amongst the men, I think Olafur Eliasson is a very big influence because I came, came here and I saw the, the piece that he did at the Tate Turbine Hall. And it just blew my mind, the sun piece, you know, the half mirror that became the full sun up there and people are laying down. Mm -hmm. So it just, he was like a big influence in thinking big. You know, like, don't be like this person who does just miniature work, but like think big. Um, Another person who's really influenced me is um, Rafael Lozano Hemmer. I saw his work in Spain, some six years, seven years ago, and it was the one where you go and you put your hand on a console and it takes your heartbeat and then a light bulb goes on in the the room and there are all these lights flickering and they're at different levels. And so I think like I'm inspired by the content of the work. I'm inspired by what other people are thinking and how big they are thinking and are they representing what's happening in the world around them. And now, these days, I mean, I went to the Haywood Gallery yesterday and the beautiful show there, uh, The Future is Black, I believe its title is. You have to go see that show. It's amazing. It's full of amazing artists. And I was just blown away. Uh, when Gucci Mutu, I think that's how you say her name, when Gucci Mutu, yeah. her work is beautiful. Gallagher's work, stunning paintings. I was just like blown away. I think, like, I don't do the same type of work, but I think the complexity is what drives me. I wonder about the Korean artist, Lee Yoo Fan. <gasps> yes? Because I've received an
0: excavation work of his in France, and um, your work somehow reminded me of uh, the light and shade which he's also
1: working with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I believe I, I, I've I spent a num- number of visits. I've been to Korea a number of times. I've been to Seoul and a, I participated in a craft biennale there as well. I am amazed at the craftsmanship of people and like, you know, the, the beautiful vessels and the master craftsmanship. And I love uh, the Japanese... Um, ability to craft something beautifully, and the, the work ethic. And so, like, if you travel around the world, you will see, or I, I see, I, I can only speak for myself, I see the amazingness that is in every culture. And I am just inspired by people, by artists. I love artists. I think they're just amazing because they come up with these ideas and product that uh, nobody thinks about. <laughs> and then it becomes like synonymous with commercialism, you know, like then businesses take after them and fashion happens and so it's it's just, um, yeah, I am very inspired by artists. I wish I, I knew more artists here because I, this is, this visit is after 10 years, 12 years and I really don't know people here and so it, it would have been wonderful to spend time with other artists, um, you know, maybe meet Cornelia Parker. I, I would, I'm a fangirl. Okay.
0: Well, we hope you come back soon. It just leaves me to, to thank Anila, Anila, Kayam, Agha. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, It was you, really Annie. insightful. I know you yeah. You were
1: a little unwell. A bit poorly, And I truly appreciate mm, you coming out. No, I'm, I hope they'll put you in a taxi and send I'm, you home. I think so, yeah, I think it's <laughs> time, but thank you so much. I'd like to thank, thank you. you. Yeah. <laughs>